Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Greetings everyone, it's Don Johnson with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. I'm here today to introduce our interview with Scott Aniel. Scott is a seminary professor and he's active as an executive with a conference ministry called G3. He's written several books on music and related topics. I think you'll find that he's quite well versed in the subject that we're talking about here. He's one of the authors in our most recent edition of Frontline called The God of Beauty. And his article is called, Is Beauty in the Eye of the Beholder? That's a big question. A lot of people sort of operate in that way, thinking that, you know, as long as I like it, that's good. But we are advocating that there is something more than just our own personal taste. Uh, We are saying that there is an objective standard of beauty, that there is beauty outside of ourselves. God determines what is beautiful, ultimately. This is the same thing for truth. There's an objective standard of truth. Truth isn't in the eye of the beholder. Things are true whether I believe they're true or not. Probably I believe some errors, uh, being a fallible human being. But that doesn't doesn't damage truth or doesn't change truth. And I don't have my own truth. There is only truth. The same is true for goodness, and we think for beauty as well. God has laid out some principles in his words. That's what we're trying to communicate with this issue of the magazine. And I hope that you find these interviews that we're doing helpful as you read the articles, because they give you a little bit more insight into what our authors are thinking and talking about as they write the articles. So I do hope you find them helpful. Now, I do want to remind you that we want you to subscribe or uh, even better, if you can recommend our podcast and our articles and our whole ministry to people you know, we think that would be very great if you would do that. That would really help us out. And uh, if you are a subscriber, if you're a paying subscriber, you will get immediate access to the article that Scott has written. And if you are a, uh, if you subscribe for a year, we will also send the, the print subscription to Frontline. And we think that's a worthwhile uh, magazine, and we're very high on our own magazine. I guess you would expect that. In addition to that, you will be able to support the uh, ministry of the FBFI. So we do have the, uh, the, the chaplain's ministry that's very vital, and we also have our uh, our conferences and our meetings and uh, the, the media that we put out, Proclaim and Defend, and other things like that. So your support is very helpful to us, and we really appreciate it. Uh, if you can join in. That's all for the commercial. And now it's time for the interview with Scott Aniel. All right, well, welcome to Scott Aniel to the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Uh, we've corresponded for many years, but finally uh, we are meeting face-to-face, <laughs> not in person, virtually face-to-face. So uh, anyhow, Scott, on uh, you're connected with G3 Ministries and on the faculty of Grace Bible Theological Seminary from my from the bio in Frontline. So there's more to your story than that. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
Yeah, I'm currently Executive Vice President, Editor-in-Chief of G3 Ministries, uh, which is uh, a ministry that for many, many years was basically just a, a large evangelical conference uh, that brought together men like uh, John MacArthur, Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham, etc. Um, in the last two years, the ministry has expanded to uh, content production, so that's why I was brought on. G3 Press, publishing books, articles, blogs. We now have a, a G3 Plus app, which has lots of teaching videos and, and series and things like that. So uh, we're just a, a ministry seeking to stand firm on the sufficiency of Scripture and proclaim biblical truth. And uh, so that's that's my current role. Previously, I taught for 10 years in the faculty of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I have a Ph.D. In, in theology with an emphasis on on worship and music and taught in those areas for, for those years. And uh, so, yeah, we're here in Douglasville, Georgia, just west of Atlanta. My wife Becky and I have four kids, ranging from 17 down to five. And uh, I'm an elder here in our church, Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville. And uh, so, yep, yeah, that's sort of a update of current status. Yeah, where you're at. <laughs> okay, very good. Yeah, I... Uh, I think when we first met, you had no kids, so that's the okay. Yeah, that's, uh, pro- that's progress. <laughs> yes, and so it's, that a, was, it's a that great was a while delight. ago. Great, del- it is. It's a great delight to watch them grow, and uh, yes. you know, it's it's a lot of fun. All right, so the, our frontline issue that you are writing for is called the God of Beauty. Your article is called "Is Beauty in the Eye of the Beholder." So uh, I would say, from reading it, you are in the camp of uh, uh, that insisting that there is such a thing as objective beauty. Right. Uh, and so could you tell us what that means and how it's reflected in our world? Yeah. So um, it's really rooted in the, in the whole nature of who God is and God being the source of all truth, right? We would, we would most, you know, conservative evangelical Christians would affirm that God is the source of truth, that truth has an objective standard uh, and the same with goodness, with morality. Uh, we want to defend the, the objective standards of morality, but because of the impact, you know, for many, many years now of enlightenment thinking and then eventually postmodernism, we've bought into the sort of secular idea, even Christians have, that beauty is relative, that beauty is merely in the eye of the beholder. And what I want to argue is that no, uh, beauty is is a is a what's sometimes called a transcendent uh, idea that stands right alongside truth and goodness as sourced in the nature and character of God himself. So if truth is objective because God is ultimate truth and if goodness is objective because God is ultimate goodness then the same is true with beauty. God is beauty he is the source of all that is beautiful, and therefore there are objective standards for beauty. Um, so I want to really root it in in a in a robust biblical theology, and I think you see that in Scripture. You see God articulating what is true. You see God articulating what is good, and you even see God articulating what is beauty. You see that in many places. Uh, for example, even in the first chapter of Genesis, where God declares His creation good on each of the days of creation, uh, that word good, that Hebrew word, and then even the, the Greek word that the Septuagint translators chose to use, 
both that Greek, Greek and then Hebrew translated word are words that embody the idea of beauty. And we, you know, I think it's important to ask, well, what do we mean by beauty? And that's part of the problem, I think, in some of the discussion is, de- is defining the nature of beauty. I think a lot of people define beauty as simply maybe that in which I take pleasure. And so even by virtue of that definition, we're, def- we're defining it using more subjective, you know, it's more about me, right? It's more about my perception right. of, of, a, of a thing. But in scripture, when the Bible uses that language of beauty, again, sourced in God, or when God declares something beautiful, it has to do with the, the, the order and harmony and fittingness of whatever we're talking about. Uh, that's really a word that I like to use to describe beauty. It is fittingness. And so when something fits, in a harmonious and orderly way within God's nature or with what, what God has made, it, it fits within in a, in a, in an orderly, harmonious way in what God has made. That is what he declares as beauty. And so again, that's sort of the source then of the objective standard that you get, that you find continued throughout scripture. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, you, and we're using terms, I think, Often our, our listeners might feel like, wow, this is real heavy duty stuff. Uh, <laughs> because yeah. it is, it's a little bit hard to wrap our heads around it. I think when sure. you compare it to truth and goodness, that's, that's very helpful because in our world, truth is under attack. Like, you know, you know, you have your truth. I have my truth. You know, we're speaking truths to one another, supposedly. Right. And, yeah. uh, and the same with, the same with goodness, you know, like, you know, what is real goodness? And you see all this insanity with the, uh, you know, praising Hamas, for example, as, as if they're, you know, doing some kind of a good deed. This is a part of the whole, whole postmodern attempt to overthrow order, I guess, is, is what we'd have to say. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and what I try to, what I try to communicate is that these, these three, again, what are, what are sometimes called transcendentals, transcendent ideas rooted in God. They are separate, right? Truth, goodness, and beauty, but they're like three strands of a cord that if you weaken or break one of them, inevitably you are going to weaken or break in the, break the others as well. And so, you know, you, you've got a lot of, again, conservative Christians today who want to defend biblical truth and truth rooted in God and objective standards of beauty. And they want to do the same thing with goodness, but they, they, they reject objective beauty. And it's no wonder then that, you know, those who do that end up being the very ones who begin to question the objective nature of goodness and truth as well. You weaken one and you're going to weak the others. They're, they're all connected because again, they're all sourced in the very nature of God himself. Yeah. That, you know, like I, for example, I, I mean, in a sort of a simplistic way, but many years in our ministry, we've had people who will attend. Oh, we love the preaching. They'll tell us, you know, the good Bible preaching, but then they'll come up, you know, I'll say something about you know, music or some other yeah. cultural thing. And all of a sudden, I'm not such a good pastor anymore because, (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, they don't, they, they know what they feel and they don't want to, uh, they want that, that becomes the, 
the guiding principle that uh, right. that makes that they make decisions by. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, so sort of the classical definition of, of beauty, which uh, is attributed to Thomas Aquinas, is that, you know, beauty is that which pleases when it is apprehended. I think we all acknowledge the idea of delight or pleasure, you know, is involved with beauty. We take delight in things that are beautiful. And so that, that gets at why people, if they don't like, something they don't like this certain kind of music or they don't like what you're saying about music uh, it tends to you know you know uh, influence how they're going to approach the topic but but the important question to ask I, I don't mind that definition of beauty but the important question to ask is is something beautiful because it brings pleasure or does it bring pleasure because it is beautiful and again, understanding theologically that beauty is sourced in God, we have to go with the latter definition. It is the beauty of an object or the beauty of a person or the beauty of an idea that brings pleasure, but not all pleasures necessarily imply that something is beautiful. And just an understanding of the nature of sin and depravity ought to lead us to recognize that. There are lots of things in which we take pleasure not because they are true, good, and beautiful, but actually because they are false, immoral, or ugly. And so we cannot make our pleasure the standard of what is beautiful. That is what those who argue beauty is subjective or relative are doing. They're making their pleasure the standard. And so if I say, you know, I like or I take pleasure in X, well, I'm, I'm more describing something about myself than I am about the object. But if I say this characteristic of God or this characteristic of, of a piece of music or this characteristic of a sunset is beautiful, therefore I take pleasure in it. Now we're saying the object itself has qualities of beauty and therefore it's certainly fitting then that I would take pleasure in something that is objectively beautiful when measured against the nature and character of God himself. Right. And I think also, and you mentioned fallenness, and I do think this is a big factor in this discussion because, uh, you know, like there are forms of music that, well, everybody has their different tastes. So like I enjoy Gregorian chant. I, my, my wife finds that ext extremely odd. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but the, but there's other forms of music that, uh, well, let's put it this way. When I was a teenager, certainly I was in an environment where, you know, pop music, the secular pop music was, was what we heard. Yeah. And there, there are elements of order in what those musicians were doing. So then we will respond to that, but we are also taking in elements of disorder. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, so there's a couple, couple things I would say. That, that These are good points. A couple things I would say. Number one, uh, there, there's absolutely room for differences in preference within the realm of what is beautiful. So in other words, I might affirm that, like, let's just keep it in the realm of music, I might affirm that that particular song or style is objectively beautiful, and I can still say, but it's, I, I prefer you know, something else over that. I, I prefer this kind of music that is beautiful over that kind of music that is beautiful. There's certainly room for that. 
So I want to acknowledge that. And then the other point that I think, you know, uh, we ought to make that you, that you really made there and just, just to affirm is that, uh, you know, because of our own fallibility and certainly our own depravity, there's no such thing as something that a human being creates that is entirely and perfectly beautiful. There's always going to be imperfections. So really we're dealing with a continuum, not necessarily a black and white category. And then the reverse is true. Like you mentioned, there might be certain works of art, certain things in life, uh, certain qualities of a person or certain kinds of music that are largely disordered and ugly, but have elements of orderliness in them as well. And so, uh, what it le- ought to lead us to then say, well, what, what ought to be our goal and objective as Christians? And that is we always want to be, uh, growing in our delight and appreciation for that which is more and more beautiful. We're, we're constantly pursuing the orderliness and beauty of God and the orderly, orderliness and beauty of our own souls and lives. I mean, that's the nature of sanctification. We're bringing you know, the Holy Spirit of God through the word is bringing our lives into order with Christ, with God and his truth, goodness and beauty. So, uh, you know, we're never going to reach uh, a, a pure delight in absolute pure beauty in, in this life. But that ought to be our pursuit. And so to, to, uh, to intentionally take delight in something that is, is mostly disorderly, mostly ugly, mostly unharmonious is actually contrary to the work of sanctification that we're, that we're supposed to be pursuing. We ought to be testing all things and then holding fast to that which is good. First Thessalonians 521. And a point I make in the article is that even that word good, it, it really is not the word that would be used to describe moral goodness. It has to do with harmony and order. And that's our pursuit. Mm. Right. Exactly. Uh, all right. So I think I was going to read a quote. You talked about the three strands of a single chord in this quote. So I think you've already uh, touched on most of that. Uh, so let me, uh, let me go on to the next, uh, the next question in my ordered list here. Yeah. So you go on to, in this article, you describe aesthetics. Okay. So that's another heavy duty concept or a big word. And yeah. uh, it involves the way we look at the beauty of things. You mentioned uh, Philippians one, nine through 11, which calls us to approve things that are excellent. So maybe you can talk about how that passage uh, instructs us yeah. on a biblical kind of aesthetics. Absolutely, yeah. So the, the word aesthetics, which is you know the, the the word that means a study of beauty. So that's sort of the, the philosophical category that we're that we're in when we discuss beauty. Uh, and it it's derived from a Greek term that literally means to perceive. So it has to do with how we perceive the world. That's where we get the idea of beauty. Um, and, and so one of the main points, I start this way in the article, and one of the main, one of my central points that I'm arguing in the article is that beauty itself is not just something we look at, but it is something that we look through. So, so uh, the beauty of a thing 
is what enables us to actually know the thing in its in its completeness. So so and, you know God Himself, for example, uh, we don't say God is beautiful because we look and we look at His beauty so much. Uh, we say God is beautiful because there is an orderliness and a harmony to the nature and character of God that, of course, is perfect. And by by looking at God through that orderliness and harmony, we come to know who he is, what he's like, and we and we actually come to know his truth and his goodness more perfectly. That's the connection between them. What's fascinating, you mentioned here, you know, uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, is that uh, this word, uh, aisthanomai, from which we get our Greek, our, get our word aesthetics, is used in the New Testament. And the, the way that it's translated is like with words uh, like judgment. So so Paul says in Philippians 1.9, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all isthanomai, judgment. So, so that is a, a uh, the ability to perceive the orderliness and harmony of whatever we're talking about. That's what Paul's praying for. So again, that has to be objective. Uh, Paul's not going to say, I, I, I pray that you grow in, in a, a relative, you know, subjective pleasure in whatever you take pleasure in. No. He wants us to grow in knowledge. Yes, that's truth, goodness, that's understanding, but also in aisthenomai, the, the skills to discern the orderliness, fittingness, and harmony of actions, of things, whatever we're talking about. That's, that's what we're referring to when we, when we refer to beauty. And so, um, you'll, you'll find, I mean, that's part, again, that's part of sanctification. That's part of mature Christianity. What makes a Christian mature, what makes a Christian sanctified is not just that we understand all of the right theological knowledge. Now, we have to understand right theological knowledge. That's part of sanctification, but that's not the whole of sanctification. Uh, the whole of sanctification is right knowledge plus right discernment, right judgment, right ability to perceive what, you know, to use uh, Paul's words in Titus 2, what accords with sound doctrine, what fits with sound doctrine. And again, that that involves our perception. That involves the, the nature of what beauty uh, does for us. And so, uh, again, that's why it's objective, and that's why we need to pursue it. That's the that's the sanctifying function of beauty in our lives by immersing ourselves in things that are objectively beautiful. We are, in a sense, exercising the skills of discernment. We are shaping our ability to be able to discern what is fitting and orderly and harmonious in this world. Right. Well, as you're talking there about sanctification and growth and so forth, an image came to my mind and this is sort of mundane because I was thinking about, you know, how, like even the way we present ourselves to the world, we try to order as much as we can, whatever, you know, the disorder that we woke up with, but the, uh, yeah, but I was thinking about, you know, you have a little kid and, you know, he, he decides he's going to dress himself. And, uh, and this is usually boys, I would have to say, <laughs> but, but you know, the shirt, the shirt's on backwards. You got two different socks on, you know, yeah. there's, 
you know, there's something, it's just not quite beautiful, right? And then right. your goal as a dad is to teach him, no, no, we do it this way, or mom, moms will teach us. And, and then by the time they're, you know, teenagers, we expect they should be able to dress themselves. And in a way, this is how, you know, as we mature in Christ, uh, maybe we come in and we have no idea, but, uh, and our tastes are not fully mature. But as time goes on, we begin to appreciate more and more God's order and how he, uh, he orders our churches, he orders our lives, he orders, uh, you know, everything else about our existence. And so that becomes more and more valuable to us. Exactly. And, and, and it also, you know, we, we have to acknowledge there's a lot of disorder in this world, right? Sin, depravity, chaos. And so part of it is how, how do we navigate the disorderliness of this world in such a way that we're not caught up in it? Or, you know, perhaps as we experience trials and tribulations because of the disorder in this life, how do we, you know, how do we make sense of it? Well, that's again why we pursue beauty because beauty Again, sanctifies our judgment, our ability to judge what is fitting so that we can make sense of the disorder and see how actually in the sovereign plan of God, even the disorder fits into, uh, his, you know, his plan. Um, cause otherwise that we might be led to despair. Or we might begin to question God, you know, where is God in all this disorder by using beauty to sanctify our skills of discernment. We are better able to to judge the order of God's plan amidst uh, the the disorderliness of of sin and chaos around us. Right. So as we're thinking about this topic and say, all right, I, I sort of see this concept. How, how was a per, would a person go about cultivating uh, a great a more biblical sense of beauty in their lives? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So as with truth and goodness, we must start with scripture, right? God has given us the word to both communicate himself to us and then also communicate what is true, what is good and what is beautiful. And we do that with truth and goodness, right? We recognize that. How do we, how do we determine whether something in this world is true? Well, we start with scripture. We, we sanctify our judgment, our ability to discern what is true with, with, with scripture. And then when we see something outside scripture, we're able to measure it against scripture. We recognize that with truth. We recognize that with goodness. We don't often recognize that with beauty. But what we need to remember is that the Bible is not some sort of, you know, abstract scientific textbook. Rather, the Bible is a, is a work of art. It is literature. It is filled with poetry and narrative and picturesque language. God communicates, and again, this is why viewing beauty as something, as something that we look through. God communicates his truth and his goodness, not in just sort of static propositional, you know, dry propositional statements. He communicates his truth and his goodness through beautiful forms of expression, view pic, through picturesque language and poetry. So, uh, we ought to immerse ourselves in the Bible. By immersing ourselves in scripture, by paying attention to what God calls beautiful, but not just that, by also paying attention to how God communicates his truth and his goodness through beautiful language, we are beginning again to, to, uh, you know, sanctify and mature 
our skills of discernment for what is beauty. Once we have immersed ourselves in scripture and we have cultivated that within us, again, this is what the Holy Spirit has promised to use, his word. Then when we look out into the world at literature, music, visual art, you know, and even aspects of creation, it is, it is by comparing those things to the beauty of scripture that we then can approve that which is excellent. We can approve those things, you know, uh, Paul describes it in Philippians 4, 8, things that are lovely, things that are worthy of praise, worthy of our delight. How do we do that? By comparing them to scripture. So it all has to start, you know, start with scripture, but then I, I firmly believe that we, that we can and ought to pursue beauty outside of scripture as long as it comports to scripture. Again, just like we affirm things that are true outside scripture as long as they comport to scripture. We affirm things that are good and moral outside scripture as long as they comport to scripture. The same would be true with, with beauty. So read good novels, listen to good music, you know, um, learn to appreciate good visual art and, and other forms of art. Uh, but always setting them up against the standard of truth, goodness, and beauty in scripture. All three have to be our measuring rods when we affirm what is true, good, and beautiful outside of scripture. Yeah, when we are saying, okay, so I, you know, like say the movie or the novel or the, you know, or whatever that I consume, uh, we consume those things, yeah. uh, is, uh, you know, if we say that, it it's something that, well, I like this. Okay, well, in a sense, we are viewing it through the grid of the flesh rather than the grid of the spirit. So when we, then we, you know, I can remember, uh, I forget, this was years ago, I was in somebody's home and uh, that we were watching television and uh, there was a very, back then, a very mild uh, profanity came across that television program. And the guy said, I don't let my TV swear at me. <laughs> So he turned it off. Nice. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, he could, you know, the things we're talking about, he probably could not articulate those things. But I think he, that's a proper spiritual instinct that there's something about that. So there's, you know, there are movies we can say, I think almost categorically, some movies Christians should never watch. Like there's, there may be, maybe the director had skill, maybe the camera work is good, but there's a lot of stuff in there that is just, you know, it's beyond the pale. Exactly. So. Yeah. And that's even, that's even more, more dangerous because you, you know, if you've got a film or this is for any work of art, music, literature, that's actually very beautiful, but contains immoral or untrue content. Well, that's even more, you know, all three are important. That's even more dangerous because the actual objective beauty is going to more, even more penetrate your sensibilities with that untruth or that immoral content than maybe something that is, that is ub- ugly that we, you know, immediately recoil from. Yeah. You also made a that's statement right. too that I wanted to jump off, uh, j- jump off from there. And that is, you know, asking, we, we, you know, judge a movie or whatever and we say, do I like it? Well, that's not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is, ought I to like this? 
And that's where we're moving to the objective standard. And this is where I think a lot of people have, again, fallen into a sort of secular postmodern trap. And they think that what they like can't be changed. No, it actually can. You can learn to develop a love, a delight in those things that are worthy of delight. And this is, and actually things that are richly true, good and beautiful often take a little bit of work to learn to delight them. You might not like it, you know, immediately the first time you're exposed to it, but you can learn to like it. You can learn to develop a taste for that which is actually objectively true, good and beautiful. And you do it just like anything else by constant exposure, by careful reflection, by, you know, learning about the thing more. Uh, and again, that ought to be our pursuit as, as Christians. Uh, it's, it's the same as, you know, my wife, when she hears me talk about this kind of thing, she, you know, she likes to poke me and apply it to my eating habits, you know. Um, <laughs> but she's right. You know, we can, you know, we, just because I like, you know, whoppers doesn't mean I ought to eat whoppers and doesn't mean that they're objectively good for me. You know, I ought to right. learn to like what is objectively good. And actually, when you learn to like what is objectively good, then you actually realize after some work, after some exposure, that actually that does actually taste better. Not only is it good for me, better for me, but it actually tastes better. The same is true with art. Uh, if you learn to like what is objectively true, good, and beautiful, and it might take some work depending on your background or your personal proclivities, but if you if you work at it and you learn to like it, you will get to the place where you where you you might you might look back at what you used to like. And, and you, you probably will have the response like, how in the world did I like that? This is so much yeah. more substantive, more tasty to use that analogy than that junk food I used to, you know, I used to fill my body with. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Even in music, I, like I, I've listened occasionally to some of those old songs I used to listen to. And you know, okay, so you get, okay, it's got that too. And, and then after a while, you know, this is just not, it does, it's not good yeah. enough. And so right. maybe well, and it's why you know it's but why I, I, I was going to say it's why pop pop culture pop music changes so rapidly because certainly there are elements of it that are catchy that grab attention right away. But I'm I'm broad brushing a bit. It's not true of all pop music necessarily, but most pop music catches your attention really quickly at sort of a visceral level. But it doesn't really have any substance. And so it doesn't last. And so people have to constantly being cha be, you know, chasing after the next visceral response, the next visceral, uh, reaction. Whereas with, with art, with music that is substantive, again, it might not be immediately viscerally attractive, but when you work to appreciate it, there's so much substance and death. That it sustains you far longer and, and the, and even the, you know, the pleasure that is derived from, uh, from works of art that lack substance and that are just visceral, it is fleeting. I mean, it's just, you know, it might be really, you know, intense the first time you hear something, but it falls away real quickly. Whereas the pleasure that we derive from something that actually has true beauty and substance might not be immediate. But it is far deeper and more lasting and more sustaining than something that's just artificially sort of immediate gratification. Yeah, and I think you can see that in how long 
certain works of art endure, like Beethoven's symphonies exactly. or Mozart's. That's why we call it uh, classical, know, so right? That's what that word classical exactly, means broadly. Yeah. It's enduring. It has it has depth to it, substance, weight, beauty, and so it endures. I mean, uh, it, it's not fleeting. Right. So I think one other thing I w- thought I would ask, and this might be a good spot to sort of wrap things up, is uh, where... I mean, I think our, our our issue of Frontline, people should read it. And so we want to, there's, this is a very good help for this type of, this topic. I've read several of the articles in it already, and I'll probably get them all done through this interview process. But uh, the, uh, what other, do you have maybe some books that a uh, person who's starting out to try to understand some of these concepts, concepts that, that we could recommend? That, yeah, well, I mean, uh, there's a couple of my own that, you know, I would recommend. Uh, Worship in Song, uh, which is actually about, I'm about to do a, a revised, expanded edition of it, but I've got an extended discussion in there about the nature of beauty and some of the things we've talked about. Uh, Sound Worship, I've got a whole chapter on beauty. And then in my book, By, By the Waters of Babylon, uh, Worship in a Post-Christian Culture, I really developed this idea of Scripture being the source of beauty, that the Bible itself is beautiful and therefore um, ought to be our standard of beauty. And even in my own my, my most recent book, Citizens in and Exiles, I've got a whole chapter on culture, beauty, art, how that all factors in. Um, so those are those are all things that that I would recommend. Um, you know, there are others, you know, uh, Roger Scruton is somebody who, as an unbeliever, wrote some really helpful things, you know, uh, about the nature of beauty. Um, Mortimer Adler as well. These, these are both individuals who weren't Christians, but who resisted, you know, the, the postmodern sort of shift away from beauty and write in a really engaging way that can be, that can be helpful. You know, unfortunately, though, there's not a lot of sort of evangelical writing on this topic because, um, because evangelicals have by and large bought into the relativity of beauty. So, uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot, but those would be some things I would recommend. And, and even in some of those books of mine, you know, you could look down at some of the people I quote and that might, you know, introduce some other authors that might be, might be useful on the, on the topic. Right. I think I've read two of yours. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little behind. It sounds like I didn't know you had a, a latest one. So, so I'll have to catch up. So, uh, well, I want to thank you, Scott, for taking time to talk to our audience. Absolutely. Um, it, this is a subject we rarely think about and our lives are very busy. And, and often that's part of the problem because, you know, we're looking for that ephemeral quick hit of, you know, of, uh, you know, that tune that just gives us, you know, we'll go home and relax. And there's right. that tune. But or whatever, or and you know the TV show. We come home, we're tired, turn on the TV, and just whatever's on, right? Or the best thing that's on. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, so I do thank you for your efforts on this. And uh, I just wonder, any any uh, sort of wrap up comments, things that you would encourage people to do, and uh, and you know finish up with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just springboard off what you just said. You know, there there are. I think there is a place in the Christian life for leisure, for, you know, things that we're, we're able to just unwind with. There's a place for that, but that cannot be our diet nor our pursuit. And that's really what I think how we ought to approach this topic as Christians. What is our goal? Our goal is the glory of God. Our goal is to be Christ-like. Our goal is sanctification. And so if we fill our lives with things that are ephemeral, that are not lasting, that 
are, are merely visceral, we're not contributing to our sanctification. There might be a place for that in measure, but our ultimate pursuit ought to be holiness, godliness, growth in our ability to perceive truth, goodness, and beauty. And so that's why we ought to pursue an appreciation for good art, for beautiful music, so that uh, we, I mean, not only does that glorify God, because by affirming beautiful works of art, we are we are saying God is beautiful. This is beautiful because God is beautiful. So that's in and of itself glorifying to God. But again, it's also sanctifying to our own souls. And if that is our goal, sanctification, Christ-likeness, and the glory of God, then we will pursue that which is objectively beautiful when measured against the standard of Scripture and the nature and character of God. All right. Well, very good. Thanks, Scott. And we will. Uh, I'm going to ask you to hang on for just a few seconds after this, but this is Don Johnson signing off for the Proclaim and Defend podcast. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend.